0: The Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free.
1: Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Tell me what's on your mind today.
0: Good to be with you. What's on your mind today? Well, first of all, I want to wish you and everybody... (laughs) our listening audience a blessed Resurrection Day, and this, of course, is the weekend that in many churches they refer to it as Holy Week, when we celebrate the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on what we now call Easter Sunday. And, you know, it's interesting, you look to those today who would deny Christianity, and how do you deal then with the empty tomb? That's a hard question for them to answer. And there's several answers that I would like to just look at here. But as we do that, I'd like to analyze them partly from a legal standpoint. But those who would try to say that no, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, well, there are several viewpoints on this. One of them would be the Muslim position. Their position, by the way, Muslims will in many ways, give a very high view of Jesus Christ. They will say that Jesus was born of a virgin, which they never make any claim that Muhammad was born of a virgin, that Jesus never sinned, and they do not claim, and the Quran does not say, that Mohammed was sinless, that Jesus performed miracles, and nowhere do we read of Muhammad performing a miracle, And they will say that Jesus never died, and the Quran says that he did not die, but it was made to appear so. I remember one time I was in a Muslim country, and they had Muslim books aimed at Christians that were written in English, and they insisted on giving me several of these when I was looking at them. One of them was simply titled Crucifixion, but it was spelled C-R-U-C-I-F-I-C-T-I-O-N, And the main Muslim position on this is that when they were ready to crucify Jesus, God or Allah caused his likeness to fall on somebody else, maybe Simon the Cyrene, maybe Barabbas, maybe another person. That person then found himself looking like Jesus and getting nailed to a cross while Jesus somehow makes his escape. Well, Jesus, the person we understand him to be, never would have allowed somebody else to take the position that was rightfully his. So that would be contrary to the character of Jesus Christ. But secondly, I would ask the Muslim, what is your source of information on this? I mean, as a Christian, we have the four Gospels, two of which were written by Disciples who were actually at the crucifixion, one of which is written by a person who was a very close associate of Peter and possibly Peter's personal secretary and Amuensis. I'm talking about Mark. And Luke, a physician who would have a great deal of understanding of these things. Then we have, of course, the writings of Paul, who talks about more than 500 people seeing Jesus raised from the dead, and he adds this detail, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, in other words, some have died. Now, he mentions this for an important apologetic reason, that most of these witnesses are still living, so if you want to check this out, go ask them, and you can be sure that his Jewish opponents, his Greek opponents, his Roman opponents would do that, And if any one of these witnesses said, no, I never told Paul that, or yes, I thought I saw him alive, but I was kind of taken up in the emotion of the time, and I'm not so sure now. But if if any one of them had done that, you can be sure that the next edition of the Jerusalem Post will read, Witness says Paul lied, but they don't. Even secular sources acknowledge that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Take Josephus, for example. But next I'd ask, well, what's your source of your information? Well, the writing that supposedly a god named Allah gave to an angel named Gabriel who revealed it in a vision to a man named Muhammad who we are told was illiterate and had it written down sometime later. At the very earliest, this is 600 plus years after the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when the Gospel narratives and the Pauline epistles are within several decades. Anyway, so the evidence for this view isn't very good. But next question I would ask is do you think really that Jesus an impostor, somebody whose likeness was made to look like Jesus, that this person would deceive everyone on the cross? Jesus had made an escape out of that, wouldn't somebody have seen it? And look who was there at the cross. Jesus' own mother, Mary, is there at the cross, looking right up at it. If that wasn't actually Jesus, but somebody that was made up to look like Jesus, don't you think she would have known the difference? Almost certainly, yes. But even if we get over those hurdles, the apologist who is opposing the doctrine of the resurrection is still gonna have to overcome some other major issues. How do they do this? How do they explain that empty tomb? If in fact this was somebody else who was made to look like Jesus, that person would have still been in the tomb. The fact that the tomb is empty obviously means that that wasn't somebody that just looked like Jesus. Well, how do people explain the empty tomb if they don't want to accept that Jesus died? and was resurrected from the dead. A common explanation is what we call the swoon theory. Now, the swoon theory is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Rather, he fell into a state of unconsciousness, a coma. They thought he was dead, and then he revived. Well, there are a lot of problems with that theory. One theory would be that, one problem with the theory, would be that, first of all, you have the crucifixion, conducted by professional crucifiers, the centurion and his men, who've been doing this for a living, for undoubtedly a long period of time. They would certainly recognize death, and they would be able to distinguish between death and a coma, and they concluded he was dead. Secondly, we have the spear that is thrust in Jesus' side, and we're told that blood and water poured forth from his side after the spear pierced it. Now, if blood and water are both pouring forth, that, doctors say, would mean that the heart was pierced. Again, this certainly sounds like death. After he's taken down, they certainly would have been able to detect that there was or wasn't a heartbeat and so on. But again, let's just suppose that all of that is set aside and somehow Jesus has survived all of this. Well, then, they prepare him for death by an embalming process, and that process also includes wrapping him, anointing him with spices and so on, but also wrapping his body in a shroud, and a shroud was typically about 37 feet long, cloth 37 feet long. Wrap that around yourself, and then see if you can pull yourself out of it. So, Let's just suppose somehow he is still alive inside that shroud. He is then placed in the tomb, and in that tomb he has no food, he has no water, he may or may not have air, we don't know for sure on that. But let's suppose somehow, after three days like this, he gains consciousness he's going to be able to then press aside that 37-foot shroud and then push aside the stone, overpower the guards if necessary? That would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. But then there's another explanation they'll sometimes give, and that is, well, the disciples came and stole the body in fact, Roman soldiers made that claim. Well, I would love to have had the Roman soldiers on the witness stand and cross-examine them about that claim. But how we do that, let's do that right after the break. And again, we'd urge our listeners to call in with questions or email questions to Brian, and we will certainly try to address those questions for you because we want this to be an interactive program.
1: Very good. So as we go to break, I'd also like to remind our listeners, too, if you have not been following each episode of Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Idesmo, you can always go to the archives at lovingliberty.net, and there you will find a complete collection of every show that the colonel has done. And by the way, it's a very thorough discussion of the U.S. Constitution. You'll be wiser for having done it, so you might even want to tell some friends. We'll be back right after this.
2: Pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, BP and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E It. There was not one problem.
0: Dynavite for life. You won't believe how
2: happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com.
1: com. Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes, it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it.
2: I have a sticky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later. Nothing, no smell.
1: The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold, and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My
2: kids who are grown up, say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway, and my kids from Florida came last week and said, "Man, the house smells
1: great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure Light. It's the next generation of light. are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel John Eidsmo is your host. He's with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I appreciate your thoughts on uh, on the Easter weekend that approaches. Any other current events that you would like to touch on uh, before we delve back into the, the text of the Constitution itself?
0: There will be a couple, but let me finish our discussion about the crucifixion and resurrection for just a moment. We were talking when we came to the break about the argument that some raised that the disciples stole the body, and as we were told, that the guards were paid to say the disciples came and stole the body while we slept. Well, like I say, I would love to have these soldiers on the witness stand and cross-examine them about that statement. And I begin by asking them, you do know that under Roman law, sleeping on post is a capital offense, do you not? And you know that Roman military discipline is the strictest the world has ever seen. You understand that too, don't you? And were to believe that you accepted money in return for confessing to a capital offense, that money is worth more to you than your life? Well, I don't know. Okay, now, there must have been quite a commotion in all of that rising from the dead or pulling the stone aside and so on, wasn't there? Well, we we, we, did you slept through this? Yes, we, we slept through it. So when he was in the tomb, and when that tomb was being rolled away, those disciples pushing this big stone aside and everything, you never heard any of that? You slept through it? Yes, we slept through it. And then after all that is done, they enter the tomb, they bring the body outside, they walk away with the body, and all of that as they're carrying that body away, you slept through all of that? Yes. All of, all, all of you slept through the whole thing? Yes. Okay, well, if you were asleep through the whole thing, how do you know that's what happened? In other words... These alternate explanations just simply don't make sense. Well, before we get into the conclusion of Article 5, there are a couple other things that I'd like to address with us today. And this morning at 8:30, I was at a hearing of the Alabama Senate Judiciary Committee. They were considering several bills, but the one that I was there to testify about was a bill that would allow the teaching of yoga as stretching and breathing exercises in Alabama public schools. And the bill is quite specific in saying that we won't be using the Hindu names for these practices. We'll be using only names that we would have in the English language, and we won't be teaching the spiritual mantras or other things that go with it. All we will be doing is just doing the exercises, the stretching, the poses, and the breathing. Well, what could be objectionable about that? My answer is several things. First of all, I think a lot of people fail to understand that religion is looked upon in a very different way in the East from in the West. In my own martial arts training and in my teaching of Christian apologetics, I've looked at Eastern religions a great deal. And in the West, usually we think about religion in terms of assent to a doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity for Orthodox Christians, or the doctrine of the death and resurrection of Christ, or other doctrines like this. In Eastern thought, religion consists more in exercises, in frames of mind, and so on. In other words, in doing these exercises, they are practicing Hindu religion. And part of that, in the breathing exercises, especially when they are in certain exercise postures and poses, and with the stretchings, this is a way the divine energy flows in and out and unites us with Brahman, that is the god of the universe, and these are even personified as Shakti and Siva, Shiva, the male and female gods and goddesses, of energy, anyway. So, well, we wouldn't think of that necessarily as religion. To the Hindu view, that is the very essence of what religion is. So we do feel it's objectionable. And I always like the story of Abraham Lincoln when Lincoln was arguing a case before a jury, and he asked a juror, "How many legs does a dog have?" Now, one account of this says calf, but we'll say dog, and the juror said four. Okay, now if we call the tail a leg, then how many? Well, then he has five. Lincoln said, no, he still has four. Just calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And just taking a religious practice and calling it something else doesn't change the essence of what it is. Not only that, I pointed out, but... The Equal Access Act, which was passed by Congress back in the 1980s, which provides that if a school allows for secular clubs, it has to allow religious clubs as well, provided they meet after hours. They could have a yoga club with faculty supervision and doing the yoga exercises and so on. And federal law already allows that. No state law is necessary for that, so they don't need that. Third, there are all kinds of exercise programs. I counted well over 100 just looking at websites on Google alone. They don't need to have the one that is associated with Hindu. And finally, the State Board of Education had imposed a rule back in 1993 prohibiting the teaching of yoga because it is a Hindu religious practice. And in 2018, the Hindu Association asked to have that rule rescinded. The state board refused. And I just asked the committee, is there any reason why we should second guess the state board of education today? The only reason we're here is that they've Try to do an end run-around the state board and come directly to you. We also proposed an amendment. And if you're going to have this, then have this amendment that whoever takes this yoga class, their parents, will have to sign a statement approving it and saying we recognize that it is associated with the Hindu religion. And I just asked how people are going to be opposing that amendment. I need to ask why they're opposed to it and why they would not want parents to be aware of that association. Well, here's what happened. The committee, and this is only the Judiciary Committee, not the full Senate, the committee voted it down. And then at the end, the chairman of the committee, who had voted no to this bill, he said he was changing his vote to yes, and it still is defeated, he said, but this gives us the right to reconsider it at a later time under Robert's rules and Senate rules, only a person who has voted with the majority can move to reconsider. And so it may come up again, but if it does, it'll probably be with some amendments. And anyway, so I'd like to think we accomplished something there. There's another point that's come up too, and question, can state universities require that their students, faculty, and staff receive or get vaccinated as a condition for being on the campus? And answer to that question, we don't know, but we'll do some more research on that. But as far as making it a requirement, probably yes, because the state has what we call a police power to protect the health, wealth, not wealth, health and safety of its population. But, Would they have to give an exemption to those who have a religious objection to vaccination based on the Civil Rights Act of 64, an act which defines religion as all aspects of religious belief and practice? I would answer that they probably would have to give that exception, unless they can show they cannot reasonably accommodate that, and they probably couldn't. Anyway, so those are two issues that have come up today.
1: to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I believe we were somewhere toward the end of Article 5 last time we uh, were doing this program. Is uh, is that where you'd like to
0: resume today? That is correct. That's where we were. Let's get back into Article 5 because this too is quite current right now. There are efforts to amend the Constitution and efforts to get a Constitutional Convention to do so. Now, Article 5 is a recognition that the Constitution is not infallible, that the framers could have made mistakes, and that there could be changing circumstances that require that there be some amendments. But there are two means of amending the Constitution. One means is what we talked about last week, and that is two-thirds of both houses of Congress approve an amendment, and then they send that amendment to the states and they direct the states that they can decide whether to approve this amendment or not, ratify it or not, and if three-fourths of the states ratify the amendment, then it becomes part of the Constitution. That is, in other words, 38 states would have to ratify. And as to how they ratify, there could be two ways. And Congress, when it sends an amendment to the states, will direct the states as to which way they will proceed in whether to ratify or not. One, the one that is most commonly used, is by the state legislature. In other words, the majority of the state legislature, that would be both houses of a state's state legislature, vote to ratify, then it is ratified by that state. And interestingly enough, when it says by the legislature there, that would indicate that the governor would not be involved. The governor could not veto a state's ratification of an amendment. Three-fourths would have to ratify. It could be done, like I say, either by a majority of each house of the state legislature or if Congress directs the other route, by state ratifying conventions. And each state would have to, if they wanted to proceed with the ratification, they'd have to call a state ratifying convention and decide there whether to ratify or not. And nearly always Congress is using the method of just sending it to the state legislatures. Now, sometimes when Congress does this, they will provide that it's to be ratified within seven years. That's a very common time limit or maybe fewer years, maybe more years, but Congress, if they wish can set a time limit for ratification and, Recently, they commonly have. Seven years has been common, and if the necessary three-fourths of the states don't ratify within that seven years, then it is considered dead, and they'd have to start again with a new amendment after that. But, as we saw, particularly with the Bill of Rights, they never set a particular time limit on the ratification of the Bill of Rights. But there was another means by which the Constitution could be amended too, And in the closing days of the convention, after Governor Morris and the Committee on Style had submitted their draft of the Constitution, and several of the delegates, George Mason of Virginia in particular, noticed that there was a means here for amendments. But Mason and others asked, well, what would happen if the people want an amendment, or even the states want an amendment, but Congress is not willing to approve that amendment. Should Congress be able to block any amendment that the people and the states want? And so, toward the end, they added another provision, and that's that if uh, two-thirds of the states apply for a new constitutional convention, then Congress will call a convention for proposing amendments. If that convention takes place, then the amendments that the convention approves will be, again, sent to the states to be ratified, either by the legislatures or by state ratifying conventions, as Congress will determine. As I say, this is added to the last, and possibly for that reason, It leaves a lot of unanswered questions. One question it leaves unanswered is if two-thirds of the states have applied for a convention and they've asked for a convention, let's say, for the purpose of getting an amendment requiring that the budget be balanced. And then the convention meets... Can the convention consider any other amendments besides that balanced budget amendment? Or are they limited to that amendment alone? Article 5 doesn't answer that question. There's a group that is pushing for a new conference or convention of the states that would like to promote this and insists that the states can restrict a convention to one issue. But nothing in Article 5 says that. Another thing this group does is they're talking about this as a convention of the states, but it is not a convention of the states. The states only apply for a convention. Congress then calls the convention. Now what's going to happen at that convention then as to how delegates are going to be selected, what the rules by which the convention is going to proceed are going to be, and so on? Again, Article 5 is silent on all those questions. The thought by many is that the convention delegates would be selected by the states and they would all come and they would follow rules that their states had bound them to. But there is nothing in Article Five that even guarantees that the states would select their delegates. All the states do is apply for a convention. Congress then calls the convention under the Necessary and Proper Clause. That would mean that Congress would also have the authority to set the rules for the convention, but there's not even any guarantee that the convention would follow the rules that Congress sets. Here's another question. Let's say that a state has called, let's say that 20 states have called for a convention for a balanced budget amendment. And then 15 states have applied for a convention for a term limits amendment. Do we add these together to get the necessary two-thirds or 34, 35? Or would there have to be two-thirds for each one? Again, Article 5 is silent on that question. Let's say that this convention takes place, and they're at the convention. They pass the term limits amendments that they've been called for. And then just at the very end, a delegate stands up and says, you know, before we adjourn, since we're all in session here, I'd like to propose a term limits amendment. Another says, yes, and I'd like to propose a new equal rights amendment. Another, I'd like to propose a sanctity of life amendment. Another says, well, you know, we've been down in the restaurant in the basement of the hotel here, and down there we we were talking about, we think maybe we ought to have a whole new constitution. And we just took this napkin and we drafted out a, new constitution on this napkin, and we think we ought to adopt this whole new constitution. Is that going to be possible? Again, nothing in Article 5 says that it can't. Chief Justice Warren Burger had made the statement that this would not be a good idea. He said, once a convention convenes, it will do whatever the majority of the convention wants it to do, and there is no way of putting a muzzle on it. He said this is a dangerous idea. Justice Scalia said it is a terrible idea. And I'm inclined to agree. In fact, James Madison, when there was a question as to whether they might have to be called in for a new convention if the present constitution did not get ratified, he said after going through all the trials and tribulations of the first convention, I would tremble at the prospect of a second. And if you'll pardon my pun and say this, if James Madison were alive today, he would turn over in his grave. And I mean that very literally. (laughs) But think about that one for a moment. But anyway, those are a few of the questions we have on this whole question of a constitutional convention. I can understand the frustration and many of those who are pushing for a convention are doing so because they want to save the Constitution. They feel that... Our Constitution has been twisted beyond recognition, and they're right. But we're not following the Constitution, so if we amend it, then they will follow it. I don't think that makes any sense at all. And The final thing I'd say about it is those who are pushing for a convention seem to assume that those who would run this convention would be people who share our conservative constitutional perspectives. Especially in today's climate, I see no guarantee that that would be the case. I see no guarantee that the Electoral College, the right to keep and bear arms, and many other things that we hold very, very sacred rights, that these would survive a new Constitutional Convention. I think it's a dangerous idea.
3: is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MediShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MediShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans for instance, and MediShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MediShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current economic Situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833 34 Bible. That's 833 34 Bible. 833 34 Bible. Pure
1: Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes, it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it.
2: Uh, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later nothing, no smell.
1: The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold, and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My
2: kids who are grown up, say our house smells like old people' house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway, and my kids from Florida came last week and said, yeah, oh, the house smells
1: great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure Light. It's the next generation of light.
2: Mounds and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, BP and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. even switch one little thing they put their nose up to it there was not one problem Dynavite for life you won't believe how happy your cat will be d-i-n-o-v-i-t-e.com
1: welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law All right, Colonel, we have just about finished up. I know you had another thought to to add on Article 5. By the way, I agree with you 100% on what good does it do to amend a document that uh, will not be obeyed (laughs) by those in power? There's got to be some other considerations as well. What else did
0: you want to add? Okay, let me add one thing else on that, too. That's that. You know, some will say that all of these dire predictions that opponents are making, like how they could abolish the electoral college, the right to keep and bear arms and so on, that this couldn't happen because whatever they did would have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. So it would only take 13 states, 13 conservative states, to block any liberal amendments like this. I'd point out, and by the same token, it would take only 13 liberal states to block any conservative amendments. And so, I think the likelihood of accomplishing anything important out of this is not that great. But at the same time, one thing they might do is propose an entirely different method of ratification. And that's exactly what the framers of the Constitution that we have now did. Back in 1787, you'll recall that Congress called for this convention for the purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, and suggesting amendments there too. And instead, they went for a whole new constitution. Several delegates questioned whether they had the authority to do that, but the consensus was that we can propose whatever we want and it's up to the states to accept or reject it. But they knew also that they wouldn't be able to get ratification by the current means because under the Articles of Confederation, The Articles could be amended only by the unanimous consent of all 13 states. And Rhode Island, for example, was not likely to approve any amendments. Several others probably weren't. And anyway, so what they did then is they did an end run around the Articles of Confederation and proposed this whole new system of ratification, that this Constitution will be effective when ratified by nine that is, two-thirds of the states. And how could they do that when the Articles of Confederation expressly said they could be amended only by unanimous consent of all 13 states? Well, one explanation as to how they can do it, there are several theories on this, but one is that the Constitutional Convention and the ratifying conventions were in effect acts of secession. What I mean by this is that when these nine states ratified the Constitution, what they were in effect doing was seceding from the governments that had been created by the Articles of Confederation and joining the government that was created by the Constitution. And again, there is a difference between the government and the country. The country was created with the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The Constitution created with the Convention in 1787 and its ratification by 1789. Final point I'll make on this too is that we're told whichever method is used, that once the amendment is ratified by three-fourths of the states, it will be valid for all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution. So people sometimes say well, it was amendments, is that equal to the rest of the Constitution, or is that kind of secondary? No, it is as much a part of the Constitution as any other part. In fact, it might even take precedence over the others, because an amendment may change other things that are in the Constitution. And anyway, so point of the matter simply being this that all amendments are fully part of the Constitution. I had one person once say to me, When I said the Constitution prohibits an establishment of religion, he said, no, the Constitution doesn't say that. The First Amendment does. Well, the First Amendment is, for all intents and purposes, part of the Constitution. So, yes, technically we're both right on that. Technically it's the First Amendment, but the First Amendment is part of the Constitution. With that, let's go on now to Article 6. And we're getting close to the complete discussion of the Constitution here. We have already looked at the amendments, but I'm sure we'll be able to go into all of these in greater detail as time goes on. But we've been giving kind of rough titles to each of these articles of the Constitution. Article 1 was Congress. Article 2 was the President. Article 3 was the Judiciary. Article 4 was Relations Among the States. Article 5 is Amendments. And so Article 6, we would probably title simply, other matters. And several very important things we need to look at here. First of all, all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be valid against the United States under the Constitution as under the Confederation. Now this was important for two reasons. First of all, there were a lot of debts here in the United States that were owed to American citizens who were Tories, that is, who had opposed the movement for independence and had supported England. They were called Tories. Sometimes they were treated with derision, but they were entitled to respect, too. But some of this debt was owed to Tories. And this was assuring them that those debts would still be valid. Secondly, as far as debts that might be owed to other nations, it is saying that these will be valid. Now, this is important because it did a great deal to shore up the credit status of the United States and the credibility of our government with other nations. It was a very common practice that when a government was overthrown, the first thing the new government would do would be to repudiate all the debts of the previous government. The fact... <coughs> excuse me. The fact that our new government or the Constitution was going to recognize deaths under the Articles of Confederation did a great deal to shore up American credibility with other nations. Now, the next clause is a very important clause here. It's called the Supremacy Clause, and deals with the order of supremacy in the United States. What is supreme? The Constitution? And the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything of the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. So, what is the order of priority of laws here in the United States. Prior to the adoption of the Constitution, and then prior to several decisions that helped to interpret this, this was not entirely clear. But for example, is federal law supreme over state law? Well, if we're a union of states and loose confederation of states, then it may be that no federal law could supersede any law of any state but that really isn't exactly what the framers created. Rather, they set forth the priority here, and this is ratified by the states when they ratify the Constitution or when they join the Union at a later time. So here's the order of priority. Number one, the Constitution. Number two, the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof. Now, what does the thereof refer to? Obviously, it refers back to the Constitution. So now the question is which takes precedence, the Constitution or laws made pursuant to the Constitution? Well, the clear answer to that question is the Constitution takes precedence over laws. And there is a case that discusses this, one of the most famous cases in constitutional history, Marbury versus Madison. And we will discuss that case next week. But the next order of priority is treaties. Treaties which are made or shall be made under the authority of the United States. Notice laws made under the authority of the Constitution. Treaties made under the authority of the United States. Now, some have tried to argue that treaties are superior to the Constitution. I would say a couple things on that. One... Most constitutional law professors will say the Constitution is superior to treaties. Two, most international law professors would say treaties are superior to the Constitution. And three, this is the point you really need to know, the constitutional law professors are right and the international law professors are wrong in the objective opinion of this constitutional law professors. And there is a case that confirms that. We'll get into that next week. Reed versus Colbert.